All right. Um, I saw some new faces this morning as you were coming in, and so if you don't know who I am, my name is John Carroll, one of the pastors here at Hope Covenant, and uh, we're excited to launch this new message series called Real Mature. Uh, we spent the sa- last six weeks uh, looking at the whole in our gospel and tapping into ideas that flow from the great commandments, um, and that included loving our neighbors. And it culminated in a church-wide effort uh, called Butler Mission Week, uh, which was an expression of the beloved part of our church's vision. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be examining the Great Commission, which comes from Matthew 28, in which Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And the call to discipleship and discipling others is a fundamental part of the Christian faith. Discipleship, though, is not as easy as it sounds. I define discipleship as the process of conforming our lives to the will of God by committing ourselves to the teachings of Jesus and faithfully interacting with the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And the process of discipleship has an incredible outcome. We are transformed into people who are spiritually mature. In short, discipleship is our desire to love God with every fiber of our being. But to truly love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength requires that we know not only God, but also our interior, the nature of our own heart and soul and mind. So we're going to be looking at this idea of emotional health, which has been communicated through books and sermons by Pete Cesaro, a pastor in Queens, New York. And what we're going to discover uh, together throughout this message series is that our emotional health and our spiritual maturity are inseparable. And for many of us, this is going to be a revolutionary idea, one that will shift our paradigms or our way of understanding ourselves and the world around us. We will be challenged. We will be inconvenienced. We may be even annoyed. But you know what? Good. Because change doesn't happen without some level of discomfort. And our hope is that over the next four weeks, we're going to, become, we're going to move closer to becoming real mature. So if maturity comes from emotionally healthy discipleship, then it will be helpful to know where discipleship comes from. The disciple practices discipleship by disciplining himself or disciplining herself around the teachings of a master instructor. So for Christians, we're disciples of Jesus, who is our master instructor. Um, But when we hear the word discipline, we don't often think of hugging pillows or snuggling with teddy bears. You know, we usually think of punishment. The Greek word for disciple is very telling. So when we look in the Greek text, the word disciple is translated as mathetes, and we can see that up on the screen. And if you look closely, the word math is in mathetes, and I hate math. I mean, throughout school, math felt like punishment. Anybody else get an amen? All right. So to me, it makes total sense why disciple is connected to this word mathetes, because it's painful, but in a very real way. In a very real way, our natural human tendency is to avoid pain. We're wired this way. 
We don't enjoy severe physical pain, which is why nobody in their right mind would put their hand on a hot stove. We don't enjoy severe emotional pain either, which is why nobody in their right mind would watch the movie The Notebook. I mean, seriously. (laughs) Only sick and twisted people would do that kind of stuff. And in our Christian spirituality, we tend to avoid painful stuff too. For instance, the spiritual discipline of fasting, in which we abstain from food or maybe electronics or maybe some other comfort in life. And that's one of those practices that we don't often employ, we don't often use, primarily because it's not pleasant. However, it's been discovered that fasting is a real practical way to draw closer to God by relying on His power and not our own. Loving our enemies and blessing those who persecute us, something Jesus clearly expects us to do, is one of his most challenging teachings. If I've been wronged, if somebody's hurt me, loving or blessing that person is not my go-to response. However, when I'm loving to people who hurt me, There's this lightness to my spirit because I don't have to carry around um, the burden of being mad or sad anymore. In addition to discipleship's problem of pain avoidance, there's also a vision problem. The local church really lacks a clear and compelling vision for discipleship. And the result of that is that churches have a bunch of spiritually immature Christians running around. And some of you are aware of the poor reputation that's been earned by people who claim to follow Jesus. Most of you know that I work for the Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation at Friends University. In my role at Apprentice, I talk to pastors all the time, all over the United States. One of the most common struggles they faced is how to cast a clear and compelling vision for discipleship in their church. Part of what the Apprentice Institute does is train individuals, including pastors, in the area of discipleship, where we explore and confront the narratives or the stories that are running our lives, where they learn and implement the practices that Jesus taught, and where they experience the joy of authentic community all under the leadership of God's Holy Spirit. It's critical that churches begin to pursue spiritual maturity and emotional health by looking beyond the ineffective ways of discipleship. And this is a process that doesn't happen overnight. I mentioned spiritual maturity begins with casting a vision for discipleship, but the vision must be followed by the right intention and the proper means. And I'll explain a little bit about that. In his book, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard wrote about an acronym called VIM. It stands for Vision, Intention, and Means. Dallas called this acronym a reliable pattern of change that can be found in virtually all success programs working on changing patterns of behavior, such as Alcoholics Anonymous and Weight Watchers. He believed in order for individuals to change, They must have a vision for what their life will look like when that change becomes a reality. For someone who wants to quit smoking, you must see yourself as an ex-smoker. For the person who wants to get in better shape, you must see yourself as a 5K runner. 
or maybe somebody who exercises regularly. Tra- uh, training camp for the National Football League opened up this week. I'm a big football fan, as you may know. And I know that every team is talking about the upcoming season. Some teams, like the Eagles and the Patriots and the Broncos, the last three Super Bowl champions, are casting a vision of bringing home another Lombardi trophy. But there are other teams that don't have that kind of vision. Now, I realize this is a bit of a touchy subject with my mom sitting in the front row because she is a native of Cleveland, Ohio. But the Cleveland Browns haven't necessarily cast a vision for Super Bowl glory over the years. Consequently, it's not only impacted the team's performance, but it's also impacted the way that their fans view the team. Don't believe me? Let's take a look. Hey, Browns. Mike Polk, season ticket holder. Killer game in Houston today. Well, thank God we built you. What a blessing for the community. You are wasting valuable space on our majestic shoreline. And what do we get out of it from you? Ten miserable games a year, including two preseason games that I have to pay for and one Kenny Chesney concert. To understand that it is actually statistically harder for a team to be this consistently bad than it is for them to occasionally accidentally be good. The probability is staggering. Did you happen to see that Packers-Chargers game today? It's like they're playing a different sport than you are. here's what you have to understand. We don't even expect you to be good. We just want you to be watchable. Do you have any idea how low our expectations are? We don't expect you to win the Super Bowl. We just want you to look better than a Division III high school team. And listen, I know that there are way more important things in life than football, but you are supposed to be our pleasant distraction from those things. But all we do is pay you money to put us in a bad mood every week. You are a factory of sadness! I'll see you Sunday. A factory of sadness. Oh, those Browns. Well, what's true of sports fans is also true of Christians. We need a vision for a better life under the lordship of Jesus. One that produces faith and hope and love. However, the vision insists on having the intention to pursue it. So we must intentionally decide that this change is so important to us that we'll do everything we can to help make it a reality. This isn't a wish for change, but a conscious decision to make it happen. Many Christians hope that, given enough time, simply by showing up to church every once in a while and doing a Bible study here and there, will eventually change them into the persons they're supposed to be. But as good as these things are, there's only so much impact that it can have on their lives. Getting beyond the range of our will, to transforming our hearts and minds to become different people requires direct participation with God. And we need to arrange our lives to make space for a real connection that feeds our soul and it changes us from the inside out. And the Apostle Paul talked about what this looks like in his letter to the Philippians. You see, Paul traveled all around the Mediterranean planting churches along the way. And he wrote several letters to them, many of which we find in the New Testament. In his letter to the church in Philippi, he's offering words of encouragement. Because just like this church, Hope Covenant, the church in Philippi was thriving. It was loving God, and it was loving its neighbors, and it was growing like crazy. They might have even hired a next-gen pastor at some point. So Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And he says, 
My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In this passage, Paul is talking about the responsibilities that believers have in their salvation. Except he isn't talking about forgiveness of sins and life in heaven. He's talking about the ongoing process of working through the imperfect, broken nature of our humanity for the purpose of maturing in Jesus. And this ongoing, lifelong process is what John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, called sanctification where we intentionally participate with God's activity in our lives to shave off the rough edges, producing a refined, a more mature expression of our faith. And when we do that, God also reveals to us aspects of our lives that we weren't even aware of. Another thing to pay attention to in this text is the word salvation. So work out your salvation has three verbal tenses, past, present, and future. You are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So Paul is giving us this full picture of what it means to actually work out our salvation. Now, I need to pause right here because some of you may be uh, struggling with a question in the back of your mind. You might be thinking, Why is this process of sanctification so important? I mean, if I'm already saved and going to heaven, then why should I work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Well, whenever I get on an airplane, I usually pop in my earbuds and ignore the pre-flight instructions. Anybody else do this? And uh, and I've been on enough flights to to know how to buckle my seatbelt and use my seat cushion as a flotation device. And the flight attendant also gives instructions on what to do when the oxygen masks are lowered. Anybody know what they say? Just shout it out if you know it. Yeah, help yourself first. That's right. So you put your oxygen mask on first, then you can help the neighbor in the seat next to you. So help yourself, then help others? Seems pretty unneighborly, doesn't it? Airlines know that you'll best help someone breathe the oxygen when you get your oxygen flowing first. In the same way, we need to be breathing in good air, the life of God, before we can effectively help others breathe it too. In other words, spiritually immature Christians have no real way of producing mature Christians. So we must intentionally work out our salvation as we reach others for Christ. Finally, we need the means to turn our vision into a reality. And this means, um, these means can include um, books, uh, they can include classes, uh, they could be support groups, maybe spiritual practices or exercises. Whatever's used to cultivate the vision is considered a means. And we'll unpack several ideas throughout this series, but for the purposes of today, I want to focus on two means. Pursuing spiritual maturity extends beyond the traditional forms of discipleship training. Yes, prayer and Bible study and worship and evangelism are important. However, followers of Jesus need training on how to practice introspection, to look below the surface of our lives, and to break the power of our past 
that can so negatively influence our present. And this requires us to come face to face with our emotions. But church leaders have historically had this attitude that feelings stand in opposition to the spirits, particularly anger, which became one of the seven deadly sins, despite the be slow to anger teachings in Scripture. In the midst of many, the repression of feelings and emotions has been viewed as a virtue. It's been viewed as a virtue. Denying anger, ignoring pain, skipping over depression, running from loneliness, avoiding confusing doubts has become a way of working out our spiritual lives. But that's not healthy. In their book, The Cry of the Soul, Authors Longman and Allender write that ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Emotions are the language of the soul. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. So, Holistic discipleship must include our feelings and emotions. And Pastor Pete Cesaro believes emotional health is the new frontier of discipleship in our day. And he suggests two means or two ways to pursue emotional health leading to a deeper spiritual maturity. And they both include looking. So the first is to look below. Emotionally healthy people take a deep, hard look inside their hearts, far below the surface, and they ask, what's going on that Jesus is trying to change? The problem with the idea of taking a deep, hard look is that most of us believe we've already done so. But the sad reality is, we haven't honestly allowed Jesus to transform the deep layers underneath our surface. It can be a scary thing to trust God's grace and God's love in order to look deeply inside. When you think about it, we have become adept at exploring outer space. I mean, we know what galaxies exist far beyond ours, yet we have not developed the skills to explore our own personal inner spaces. In confronting this, we discover that the longest journey of any person is the journey inward. For some of us, a simple but helpful exercise is to pay attention to our emotions and our body's reaction in certain situations. You may have a knot in your stomach or a tension headache. Maybe you're grinding your teeth at night or clenching your hands or having trouble sleeping. Pay attention to those. Pay attention to those things. And then ask yourself, What might my body be telling me about my feelings right now? And if you find yourself confronting some painful connections between feelings and your physical reactions, you can ask God to help you with that. You can say, God, would you bring your peaceful presence into my heart and into my mind? You know, God has given us the gospel to create a safe environment to look below the surface. Jesus is telling us, you can be yourself because there's nothing left to prove. Your relationship with me is not based on your past or your present. Jesus says, it's my past record that has been credited to your account as a free gift. 
The ultimate purpose of honest self-examination is to allow the gospel to transform all of you, both above and below the surface. And the, and the end result is a greater capacity to love. And that leads us to our second way, our second means that we can pursue emotional health. And that's to look back. Emotionally healthy people understand how their past affects their present ability to love. We run into trouble when we've been hurt by someone and we ignore the pain by burying it in the dark recesses of our mind. We also tend to hide our past from others. We think, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. It's actually for this reason why belong is a vital part of our vision. Every Sunday we tell people, no matter how messy your life is, this is a place where you can belong. The reality is, a church that pursues emotional health is an inherently messy place. We are a community where it's okay to not be okay. One of the most comforting things about the Old Testament is uh, all the stories of the, the, the messy people and the messy relationships. And Jacob and his mom tricked Esau into giving over his birthrights. Jacob's brothers sold him into slavery. David cheated on his wife. Now, you would think that this is the kind of behavior that would separate humanity from God forever. But you'd be wrong. In the New Testament, Jesus makes all things new. He makes us whole again. His love and His grace reconcile us to God. And Ezekiel shares a prophetic word about God. By saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We receive a new heart, a new nature, a new spirit, a new family. How can you fully appreciate the work of Christ in our present relationship with God unless you understand the past? What we can learn in the present is that our past doesn't have to define us. We find our story in the stories of people who have gone before us in God's overarching story. Another aspect of looking back is being adopted into God's family with the new name of Christian. But that doesn't erase our past. God doesn't give us amnesia or perform emergency emotional or spiritual reconstructive surgery. God forgives the past but does not erase it. So we enter into this family of Jesus with wounds and brokenness. The scars remain, but we're sent out to heal others as wounded healers. Discipleship then must include honest reflection on the positive and the negative impact of our family of origin, as well as other major influences in our life. And this is really hard work. This is the painful stuff. 
And following Jesus is a process that takes time. But the extent to which we can understand our past and how it has shaped us will help us break destructive patterns and grow in our love of God, our love of others, and our love of ourselves. Embracing the truth about the emotional parts of our lives will unleash nothing short of a revolution in our understanding of God, ourselves, and the role of the church. A journey that will lead us to become real mature. You will find freedom. The kind of freedom that Jesus talks about when he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You'll also begin to discover that every area of your life is better. There will be a levity, a lightness to your everyday activities. Jesus assures us that under his lordship, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. While you can certainly practice looking back and looking below by yourself, I have found the best way to bring about transformation is through spiritual friendships. Maybe for you this means plugging into a hope group. Maybe this means uh, finding a friend or two to connect with over coffee or lunch. Just as long as the spiritual friendships are honest and authentic and loving. You can find people who can be your church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, where together you're able to enjoy the stability and the security of the kingdom of God where you're able to express confidence in prayer and where you're able to celebrate a new identity as one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And that is good news. That's the gospel. Next week, we're going to be exploring how to embrace the painful areas of your life. And these can be the biggest steps toward emotional health and spiritual maturity. It's a process that I refer to as hugging the cactus. And so uh, before then, let's go to God in prayer. Oh God, you have cast a vision for our lives, one that includes not just loving you and our neighbors, but loving ourselves as well. And God, that can be the hardest part of your great commandments because there's brokenness and imperfections and wounds that we carry around. And God, it's a burden and it's weighing us down. But you loved us so much, you gave us Jesus who tells us his ways produce the kind of life where with the help of his spirit, we can experience his easy yoke and relief from burdens. And we know, God, that this journey into sanctification where we work out our faith in you with fear and trembling begins with honest, honest reflection with ourselves and coming face to face with the emotions that exist below the surface and that are connected to our past. So would you give us the confidence to take a deep look into what has shaped us and the courage to change? and lean into the life you're calling us to live as residents in your safe and secure kingdom, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, we still belong to you. 
It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.